I think the most difficult part is just getting everyone to stick their neck out and try it and just make it happen, make a change. That's the number one thing is people just don't want to do work. They don't want to change. They're afraid to make it happen. So I think, unfortunately, though, as in most things, that's usually when it's too late is when people are willing to initiate change. And I see that on a daily basis. Hopefully it's not the case for us or our country. We'll see how it goes. Okay, welcome back for another episode of the Post Money Plan Podcast. My name is Dallas Post, and I am your host for the show. My goal with the Post Money Plan is to liberate you from financial oppression and empower you to build selfless wealth. On the podcast, I explore all things personal finance, economics, and investing related. If you want to know more, you can find me at postmoneyplan.com or search the Post Money Plan in the iTunes podcast app or in Google Play. If you want to learn to save money without feeling like you're giving up your lifestyle and would benefit from a much more hands-on approach, you should sign up for my one-on-one financial coaching program at savepainfree.com. All right, on with the show. All right, I'm continuing my discussion with Mike McNeil about the inefficiencies in the healthcare system. Last week, we closed things out talking about the need for us to move away from symptomatic care that treats health problems after the fact to preventative care that treats health problems before they even become problems. So to jump right back into it, that leads me to the next thing I wanted to ask you, Mike. Which was about how hospitals and the healthcare system shares or doesn't share information or data on patients between themselves. Because like you're saying... You might live in one town or one city or go to one hospital and you get treated for this there, like you have your uh, appendix removed at this one hospital that you grew up in, and then you move towns and you get a, a vaccination there, and then you move on. So, and, I think so how does that's that end a perfect up working segue because the, uh, the first part of this whole brainstorm session could basically be boiled down to misappropriation of resources on symptomatic care rather than preventative care. And that's one of the largest overall issues facing healthcare right now. And then issue number two being wasteful spending being number one cause being redundancy. And the redundancy is a chief feature of approaching this like it's an industry and not an infrastructure. For example, if while our country had been expanding if the postal service, well here, well, here is a good example. So the railroad system in the United States was not heavily standardized at the start, especially. And a lot of it had to do with the actual technology for keeping time. Uh, and it's kind of as the technology caught up, the railroad eventually caught up as well. And eventually they had standardized times and routes and everything. So, and people could more reliably go places. But that's, you know, transportation now is, is a, whole transportation grid is an infrastructure you know we have in places it gets a little bit more convoluted like here in california we have private roads that you can get passes for year-long passes for and it gets a little bit more complicated and that's kind of what our current president wants to do with the net transportation grid all over the country is he wants to privatize all of the roads and so we'd have tolls all sorts of creative tolls and passes and in memberships and I really believe that the costs would spiral and the actual delivered goods would suffer. And I've seen that in a lot of industries where you get a lot of business and marketing types in the room and they're, and they're essential. But the problem is, is there's too many of them in the room and then they start to find ways to 
optimize, but they're not optimizing for performance. They're optimizing for perception or maybe for not even for the perception of consumers, but maybe stockholders. And the ways that they're technically, quote unquote, innovating are not adding value. And I just I say this as a, as a person who's extremely frustrated with the insurance marketplace. And when they're when I'm, quote unquote, shopping for insurance packages and, and things like that, there's a lot of obfuscation. There's not a lot of things that are clear. And as a consumer, you're so clearly disempowered in shopping for insurance in an informed or safe way, even with the current marketplace being kind of redesigned to be more transparent. Well, it definitely seems like healthcare insurance, it definitely seems like health insurance is intentionally convoluted so that you can't see the forest through the trees between all the different co-pays, co-insurance and deductibles and out of pocket and all those different things that are really just trying to, like you say, obfuscate the true cost of what you're paying for the things. Because if it was just very straightforward, this is the amount that you have to pay, then you would be able to do an analysis and say, this that, is fair that or this issue is number not three fair, that we can get to is the I third payer system. So to start out, so issue number one is the misappropriation of investment in symptomatic care over primary care. Issue number two being redundancy and issue three being that the whole setup with third payer doesn't work. So to completely just close the lid on redundancy real quick is as a primary care doctor, we're linked with certain hospital systems and we get privileges with systems and we might have an EMR that we can share with them, but that limits us because the EMR that we have doesn't communicate with any of the other EMRs in the area. And in my region, for example, we have one, two, three major hospital networks and then maybe five or six smaller networks in the area. And our patients go to all of those ERs. So that's, you know, nine or 10 e, uh, EMRs that we don't have access to. And we don't see those notes. So when they go to those ERs and they come back for an ER follow-up visit, we have to pretty much take them at their word. Or if we send them to an outside specialist, we're in the very scary position of having to take them at their, the patient's what, the, what did the patient recall from that visit with the specialist? Did you take good notes? Because I don't have the specialist note in front of me. Or if I do have the specialist note in front of me, it's handwritten and I can't read it. It's useless. <laughs> um, and that's after it's gotten scanned a month later, you know, and put into the system. So having redundancy in the system can be a strength in certain regards, but in the way it is right now, it's not. And that's because it leads to delays in care. and that ties in with the whole third-party process, and we'll, which we'll get into in a little bit here. Is there any kind of standardization through medical records and so, across the industry? The only thing approaching that would be HIPAA and high-tech, which are basically legislation protecting your healthcare records, privacy, and accessibility, and certain electronic caveats to that. But if you're talking about the EMRs, I don't know. I really, I don't know. I don't, I don't see it. We have several EMRs in our area which have the same base code that they use. They're MUMPS-based and they're all based on – their databases are on SQL, but we can't use them because none, none of the architectures that have been set up from system to system are the same. And it's my intuition from what I have observed in the healthcare systems where I work is that a lot of those architectures aren't set up and that if I were to put my money on it, I would say maybe Kaiser is – and uh, the one in the Northeast, maybe they're the only two that actually have a database that's actually set up. 
everyone else is just jumping through hoops that the CMS puts out, but the CMS is putting out all these hoops so fast and these, these mandates in order for people to get their Medicaid money that the systems are just, they're doing surface service to it. And they're saying, yeah, look, we're doing population care. We're doing this. And the truth is they're just trying to check off boxes and make it look like they're doing a good job. But yeah, that's, that's the real answer for you is that a lot of these <laughs> okay. top-down edicts from CMS and, and Medicaid, Medicare are coming top down. They're not coming down with the respect for what systems are currently equipped to accommodate right now and realistically deal with. That's the problem with healthcare is you and I are not the consumers. The consumers are the third-party payers, the insurance companies. And this is problem number three. This gets to the root of the whole sickness. We are the product. You and I, the patients, are products. And we're sold, packaged, parceled, and bundled up like subprime mortgages to these third-party payers. Uh, it is purely for their convenience because they have all the agency. We have very little agency. Like we have the illusion of agency where we get to choose which one of them we can pick to, you know, to negotiate with on with on our behalf. But the truth is, is we have no control at any point in the process over that hospital bill. And we hope that our insurance company is A, able to negotiate a reasonable rate, and then B, pays most of it. <laughs> Otherwise, you can be really screwed, even if you do have insurance, if you're underinsured. And that's another thing too. That's a huge thing. We don't have enough yeah. people out there who are fully educated and able to help people navigate that marketplace. I don't know how to navigate it. I just pray that I don't get sick like every other person working in health. We don't have time to do that. We just have time to come home, work on our charts, go to sleep, get up, do it again, go home, work <laughs> on our charts. So that's problem number three is this third payer system. It disenfranchises the patient and it exacerbates the problem of patient engagement with their care. How can you be engaged with your care when you have absolutely no autonomy over your ability to choose who's doing your procedure? to truly have any say in it whatsoever. I would think that there would be a natural demand for a service that would port someone's complete medical history, that it would go along with a person from wherever they go, whatever hospital or place that they go to to receive care that would be with them and they don't lose that information and they have access to it and they're aware of what they've received, what they've been treated with, and that then they can provide that to whoever's going to give them care. Because, for example, me, in my experience, I'm 31 years old. I've barely been in the hospital as an adult, but I have like no idea what my medical records are or whatever, like yeah, or who yeah. has them. No, and that's I don't know what I've received in the past. Or when they first entered the healthcare system, I just, it's like, like I don't that. know the first it's thing. Like about, they're just a, it's like you know a little. You know, innocent baby being born into this world of horror, and they have no idea what awaits them. It wouldn't be so horrifying if starting in grade school, we taught people, you know, instead of teaching them basket weaving, you know, if we if there was a mandatory, if your health class actually taught you how to keep track of your records, how to take ownership of your records, how to find the right insurance and things like that, that would be huge. So do you foresee any time in the near future some kind of solution coming to bear or being mandated or edicted down that people would actually end up taking ownership of their records and that they would follow them around and that they would be 
ported to different hospitals, both individuals and hospitals would actually be aware of yeah. a person's health history and records. Yeah, it would come from a comprehensive EMR. This EMR system, this electronic medical record, it would have to be universal, truly universal. I mean, international, because it would be one of the most sensitive parts of the, the country's infrastructure and hardware. For it to work, for it to have buy-in, is you'd have to have assurance that international hackers wouldn't be breaking it. But that's like impossible. Yeah. So that's one of the barriers to it as well. There's a lot of barriers to having university EMR, numerous barriers. But part of the this, the question you asked wasn't what are the barriers. The question is what what do you need to get there? And then after you figure out where you need to go, then you figure out what the barriers are and then what the solutions are to each of those. So where we need to get to is we need to have a universal EMR because a universal EMR will be set up to allow, it'll eliminate all the redundancy of chart work because so much of what you do as a student and a resident is about writing notes and duplicate work, writing down the same labs and the same vitals that someone else has input just hours earlier and then someone else duplicating your note when medicine is not wanting for tasks and things to be done. It makes no sense for <laughs> people to be wasting time writing the same things down three and four times, you know? So yeah. an EMR would eliminate duplicated effort, would eliminate requisitions, would eliminate, would allow people to refocus the jobs and tasks and manpower currently assigned to track down faxes and emails and, and all these other things because it would all be right there. Uh, it would all be organized, it would be universal, it would be easier to switch between systems because the EMR is the largest part between learning a new healthcare system and the resources there is how to navigate this this new input-output, uh, electronic input-output that you have to do every day. It just sounds like that would unlock an enormous amount of economic potential. I mean, just like freeing up yeah. doctors' time. and Not and, only that, but it would empower and, patients as well. If you had a comprehensive EMR with a patient portal that allowed patients to, to have their access to their own labs and their vaccinations and have all that information, you know, so that they would have ownership, actual ownership over their health. Not only that, but an EMR that would incentivize third-party applications with fitness apps to hook into it. And then that would also allow people to log in their gym memberships or their activity so that they could then subsidize their insurance with how active they were on their bicycle or their, their gym activity and things like that. So that people were rewarded for doing good health or making good choices. <laughs> yeah. And then you could also do the same thing That's with a good idea. barcodes that could reflect, you know, health at the store that would actually reflect people. So you would know when people came to you, a truly universal EMR would be an infrastructure that would be supportive of that. And that I think it needs to be not just a national, but an international effort as well. And I know we're loath to do it here and we're slow to do it, but I think the developing world in Africa, especially they're poised to leapfrog a lot of our traditional infrastructures like, like sewers and, and things like that. And once we show in these developing world laboratories, but in, in these developing world economies, that this is a viable infrastructure and it's a necessary infrastructure, then I think it'll it'll have to follow suit over here because that's not just capitalism. That's, that's the natural evolution of complexity is that in order to keep up with the Red Queen, you have to be running at the same pace. Well, unfortunately, with infrastructure, you kind of have the phenomenon where it can be easier to start from scratch than to try to exactly. revamp an existing system. Exactly. And that's what I think of every day when I'm driving in awful traffic is I think about like, what will become of these asphalt roads 
in 100 or 200 years when we stop using cars or they're no longer viable or we just a bankrupt society and no one uses them anymore. You know, as I think about like what will become of these spaces, because they're pretty good spaces, you know, you know, some of them can still be used as roads, some of them become bike paths, or we unleash certain types of mycobacterium and fungus on them to transform them into fertile soil again. What will we do these roads? What will we do to the, the redundancy that we have in healthcare right now? Unfortunately, a lot of the other side effects of the um, almost like Chernobyl hanging over our, our national mindset with our current conception of capitalism is this notion, it's a zero-sum mindset that pervades our careers, our relationships, our relation to all of our resource bases. And it's it's kind of become an international mindset now that we've exported everywhere since the 80s, is this zero-sum competitive mindset where you got to be a pirate to survive and it's okay to be a, do everything in the name of competition, even if it's asocial and it's destabilizing the base which permitted your initial prosperity in the first place in order to engage in that competition. Yeah, I, I can definitely agree with that because in my personal opinion, I kind of see both sides to the coin in the sense that in the capitalist system, you have the incentive for competition, but then you can also have the asocial tendencies with that. But then you have the human dynamic and the interpersonal love and compassion and care for people around you which could be at odds with your individual profit or gain exactly exactly um, and i think capitalism when it's at its best it emphasizes collaboration rather than competition and that's what people miss and forget and that's what i think really shifted a lot when a lot of pop culture shifted in the 80s was there became a focus on competition rather than collaboration and that a lot of our, our best examples of what we produced here in this country came out from collaborative efforts and that's true for, for healthcare as well. So when you're saying what, what's going to happen to all these people, all these coders, all these billing specialists, all these people who would eventually be redundant or not needed in a new healthcare economy, my answer to that would be they wouldn't go away. You know, like healthcare is big enough. The horizon is always, it's always moving. You know, it's never, we're never going to get there with healthcare because the name is healthcare. It's not sick care. But the truth is, is we've never arrived to healthcare. Healthcare is about human thriving, and that's always going to be on the horizon. And we still have a, quite a ways before we can even, if ever, defeat sickness. As long as we're, we're dying, then there's still a demand yeah, for so treatment. Yeah, so the answer is people just have to be amenable to education throughout their lives. And as long as they are, then they have a place for it in, in the new healthcare economy. And that's not just learning iterations of skills you already have, but that's learning new skills too. You know, another tangent, but this is something that I think of a lot because of my ethos with the post-money plan, is that it seems very um, conspicuously absent from our education system, like certain skills that are critical, not just to certain people, but pretty much to all people, and yet absent from the curriculum. So with the post-money plan, I'm targeting financial education. And you would think that since everyone earns and spends money, that people should be learning about money, and yet we don't learn it in school. Everyone cares about their health or should care about their health in the sense that they want to live and not die. And yet that is also largely absent from our curriculum. And yet there's a bunch of skills that we're taught that aren't really relevant to our personal lives. And in that sense, the education system is designing us to be employees rather than yeah. humans. 
Yeah, because we live in a culture of convenience. It is more convenient to deal with a cog than a, a complete human. That's what frustrates patients with all their clinical interactions with everyone at every every stage in the system is because you get dehumanized as a provider and a patient because the system functions more smoothly right now with people operating within very defined roles. But human, the human condition and experience is broad and you can't conveniently cram it into a prescribed 15-minute visit for that's going to work for every single person. The fact that never works for anyone. But like, <laughs> yeah, we have to start, we have to at least start adjusting the system. Otherwise, it's going to break people. But unfortunately, it needs people to run. So it'll run out of grist for its mill real soon if it doesn't start accommodating changes for patients and providers. All right. I just want to interrupt for a second to remind you guys about my Save Pain-Free coaching program. If you make a solid salary but can't seem to get ahead, this is a one-on-one coaching program that is going to be a game changer for you. Through the program, I'll help you develop a personally customized savings plan with specific goals and timetables to achieve them. And I guarantee that I'll save you at least $600 a year or you'll get your money back. Go check out the program now at savepainfree.com. That's savepainfree.com. Okay, back to what we were talking about. So my last question for you was, how do you think the process of becoming a doctor impacts healthcare quality and also the cost? So I remember you asked me a really good question four years ago. How many people does healthcare really need in order to, in order to run? How many doctors, how many nurses, like not just physicians, not just providers, but like how many people does it need to run? The more I learn, the more I realize I'm not equipped to answer that question because there's so many people involved in healthcare. People who, whose jobs I have no idea, like how they do them or what they do. Like in lab and uh, pharmacy, they're just kind of operating in the bowels of the hospital, but we depend on them a lot covering us and doing the right stuff and giving us the information we need to treat. A lot of what I do just kind of skims the surface of the functioning of a hospital, not just the system itself. So I don't even, I don't even see most of the costs, but as far as healthcare education contributing to that cost. Well, one of the things I'm alluding to when I ask it like that is that becoming a doctor seems like an extremely rigorous process. So on the positive side, to me, that seems like we're ensuring a certain level, a certain standard of doctors in society that you have a lot of education, you go through a rigorous process, and so there's a certain level of vetting to the quality of doctors in the system. But on the other side of the same token is that by making it so rigorous and difficult to go through the process, not to mention the cost you have to pay to go through medical school then it's so much harder to become a doctor. So then there's less doctors available, you know, less people that become doctors, and therefore less doctors available to treat patients and provide healthcare. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting notion. I mean, the profession of doctor of medicine is, it's, it's a holdover. It's one of the oldest holdovers going all the way back to Galen. The role of the physician has always been kind of broad. And maybe that's because of some people might joke that it's because of the egos of the people that attracts that it remains that way. But we've been examining that and we've tried to bridge the gap by creating mid-level providers or people who are able to fill certain roles 
that doesn't require the full attention of a, of a licensed physician to do that, or they can they can almost operate semi-independently or, or almost like an extension with a physician team to do that. And I've seen instances where it works amazing, and I've seen instances where it doesn't work at all. But as far as the physicians themselves, I don't know. I I need to get back to you on that. I need to do some more reading about the actual history of healthcare edu- education and the changes in it. All I know is how how the current system is now, and I just don't know how it honestly how it got that way. I know like initially what it was like maybe 400 years ago when there was not much in terms of regulation. <laughs> you could pretty much theorize things and test things in a way that would be considered morally and ethically barbaric today. <laughs> and I'm trying to remember, there was a physician who did the first catheterization, I think, on his own heart or on himself or something crazy. But the the start of medicine is full of stories like that, just cowboys and mad scientists. <laughs> Isn't that kind of going on right now, though? Like someone is doing gene editing on themselves, like the no, CRISPR gene, gene editing. But it sounds kind of like the same thing, just on a different level now. Gene editing could be Pandora's box and people are kind of like doing whatever they want. I haven't heard of anyone doing CRISPR on humans yet. I just don't know. I have a lot of ignorance about that. CRISPR came out after I got my biology degree. So that (laughs) totally revolutionized biology and it came like a year or two after I got my degree. So (laughs) Invalid. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Worthless. <laughs> uh, so I'm probably butchering this example, like the actual facts of, of this, what I'm alluding to, but I have heard about in Canada that there were a certain set of surgeons who were not certified in this oh, yeah. traditional sense of this, doctors that would perform yeah, only heard. one very specific surgery and they would do that and they were very good at it. Yeah, I was telling you about this. It was the Shoulders uh, Hernia Repair Surgery surgery Clinic. Yeah, and the way it would work is his sons would go to medical school, then they'd just come and work with him. They wouldn't even do a residency or anything. They'd just go and do that procedure. Which, But they had really good results with that? Yeah, I mean, they had amazing results. And that's another great question for healthcare is specialization. What do we gain from it and what do we lose from it? Because I think that there are certain areas in which specialization is excellent and there are certain areas where it really hurts us. And that I think quality healthcare, the number one thing for quality healthcare, what makes someone a great doctor or a great healthcare system is how empowered that doctor is to take responsibility of your care. If that doctor is overwhelmed, harried, waylaid, they will do everything possible to sequester themselves away in their office, away from you, to only see you for two or three minutes max and shuffle you off to another doctor after that. And that's going to be true pretty much everywhere in America or anywhere that doctors' time isn't protected. The best analogy I have for that is in a trauma situation, in the trauma bay, when someone gets in a car accident, they, they come in. And there's a trauma team that's there. There's clearly defined roles. And one of the most important roles is the trauma team leader. He's there not to ventilate the lungs, not to run the monitor, not to do compressions or to to check the wounds. He's there to watch everyone else do that and direct them. And to keep in mind 
the whole process and direct it, you know, and direct the resuscitation effort if it needs to happen and the whole therapy. He's supposed to be at the, the foot of the bed. They're supposed to have their eye on the, the patient, the monitor, and everyone else. And they're monitoring the whole trauma situation. And there have been a lot of studies in the emergency and surgical literature about successful trauma resuscitations. And it all comes down to the visibility of the, the team leader and how empowered they are in that environment. And a lot of issues with unsuccessful trauma triage and resuscitations and bad patient outcomes, people coming in and bleeds not getting assessed or evaluated or attention pneumothorax not even getting that is when either that team leader role is absent, poorly defined, or there's systemic errors preventing the person in the team leader role from seeing the whole picture. I'd say that primary care, in its essence, is kind of like that team leader position in the larger scale. And the person's, you know, not in an acute setting, but in the larger scale, is that you need to know everything that's going on with that patient before you prescribe something for their blood pressure. You kind of need to know, do they have renal insufficiency? Do they have heart failure? Do they have asthma? Because medications have side effects and those side effects have consequences. And you can't just treat any symptom in isolation in medicine. That is a fallacy. You know, there's self-limited conditions, but for the most part, you are either going to cause a direct harm or you're going to be negligent and prevent something that a preventable cause of morbidity because you just do nothing about the patient. And unfortunately, one of the other heartbreaks that I deal with on a day-to-day -day basis in medicine is that the current EMR structure everywhere is not perfect because it requires human effort to clean up charts and to make that person's chart legible and sensible and clean and have the medications present and the problems present. And this is something you might not appreciate if, if you don't work in medicine, but you just assume that you're in a healthcare system and all your records are there. That's not the case. There's a bunch of scanned documents that no one has looked at. That's the problem running rampant through EMRs right now, is in order to address the, the issue of the healthcare record being complete, people have deferred the work of actually processing what's in the EMR for just scanning as much erroneous paperwork as possible that gets faxed over from other places. <laughs> so you get these medical records that are thousands of pages long, and you only need maybe two or three of those pages to really tell you what you need to know about that patient. But you have to sift through mountains and mountains of scanned ass covering, which is scanned <laughs> by people who have no idea what they're doing, who are just peons, who are you know secretaries or billing people, and it's just their job to process papers. And they don't care about the healthcare or whatever. They just care about getting their papers scanned so they can go home in time for happy hour <laughs> while you, <laughs> you stay the extra two hours to sift through that chart, find what you need. <laughs> but yeah, it's a huge, huge issue because there's a lot of wasted time and effort. Yeah, it's kind of crazy to think about. Right now, just like in a final thought that I'm having is that the question in my mind is, is it going to be doable? Like, are we going to be able to reformulate the healthcare system in an effective, both on a healthcare level and a cost and like economic level to reformulate it or that it has to be start completely from scratch in some way, paving new as opposed to rebuilding the old? Yeah, I wonder, I wonder too, like how that would work out. That's why I think the answer before healthcare has to be economic. It's going to come down to the post-money plan, I think, <laughs> because 
a lot of the quagmire coming up right now with, with healthcare comes down to how are we going to fund this huge paradigm shift, you know, and how are we going to transition to the new healthcare economy and all that? Because there's so many moving parts to this right now. Basically, what that come, what moving parts comes down to is there's a bunch of people who have comfortable jobs and they go home, go home to big screen TVs, and those jobs with the big screen TVs are going to be in danger. So we've got we've all gotten accustomed to a certain level of comfort in this country. And anytime anyone anywhere says something about changing the system, there's a lot of people who get irate really quickly because that threatens their Netflix time. Yeah, that's true. But that's a problem for another podcast. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, sorry for keeping you up so late. I appreciate it because I love just having the excuse to have these discussions because like, I, I really enjoy the philosophizing almost, yeah, yeah. You know? talking theory I, li I like it too not 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 just because i like to complain because i also feel like there are solutions to this it's the crazy thing is everyone likes to say the same old line but it's going to be difficult like i don't know i think the most difficult part is just getting everyone to stick their neck out and try it and just make it happen make a change that's the number one thing is people just don't want to do work they don't want to change they're afraid to make it happen so i think Unfortunately, though, as in most things, that's usually when it's too late is when people are willing to initiate change. And I see that on a daily basis. Hopefully, it's not the case for us or our country, but we'll see how it goes. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree. And most of the time, like if things aren't too bad, 90% of people are just going to be part of the herd that's just like along for the ride and kind of ambivalent and will just go along with whatever everyone else is doing or says should be done. And we'll be just trying to like cover their backs and not be held accountable for things. So the paper pushers are scanning in those 300 page documents because they want to just check their boxes so that they're not held accountable for something. Even if they stopped and thought about it, like, hmm, maybe this isn't the best, but I don't want to deal with that because I just want to cover my bases so that like that problem's on you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much for all your profound insight. Well, thanks for tolerating me wander wandering far afield. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> yes. Catch us next time on another episode of the Post Money Plan Podcast.